Well, it's a great joy to be uh, back here in uh, Hollywell Free Church. Um, 26 years ago, you sent us out to uh, Latvia, and during those 26 years, you have supported us, prayed for us, and given us a lot of guidance and wisdom, and so we're very thankful. And so it's good to be back here uh, this morning. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this chapter that we're going to be considering this morning. And um, now that we have returned from Latvia, um, some people have asked me, is there any need for missionaries to be sent anymore to Latvia or even to other parts of the world? Do we still need to send missionaries? And my answer is, yes, of course, because God is worthy to be known and praised by people of every nation, tribe and tongue. And how will people know unless people go and share the good news of the gospel? And who are the best people to go? The best people to go and to tell others about our great God are those who know this God. And that is why I want us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 because here in this chapter we're told something wonderful about the character of this God. Something wonderful about him. And it is very important for us to know if we're Christians to understand what is being said here And if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you too need to know the character of this God. And if you're going to go out and tell others about Jesus, this God's son, then you also need to know this. And you're asking me now in your minds, what do I need to know? What is this thing from this chapter? Well, I'm glad you asked me, because if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, Let's just go through this. In uh, verse 1, we read that the king, that is King David, has settled in his palace, in his house. God has given him rest from all of his enemies. And as he is sitting there with the prophet Nathan, this thought comes to his mind. In uh, verse 2, he says to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a wonderful cedar house, but the ark of God remains in a tent. And David then has in mind, he wants to do something for God. And Nathan the prophet there encourages him in verse 3 to do that, just as any... um, person in ministry, if somebody comes up to you offering to do something for God, you say, yes, of course, that's a wonderful thing. But later that night, God appears to Nathan and he tells him that he does not want David to build that house of cedar for him. Look at verses 5 to 7. And why is that? Well, it is because of this wonderful truth that I want to speak about this morning and I want you to grasp 
something wonderful about this great God. Look at verses 8 to 11, or let me just read them to you. Now tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. And as I read that to you, I was emphasizing to you, God is saying, I, 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 I. I have done all of this for you, David. And this is what I want us to understand this morning, that we don't do anything for God. We always, only, ever respond to what God has first done for us. That is the important thing I want you to understand. David, you are not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for you, God says. Now, David has no need of a house. He's already sitting in his house. It's his palace, his wonderful palace. He doesn't need a house. Well, God is not using that word house in that way as, a, as regarding a physical building. He's using it in a different sense. Just like we say that Charles is the king, he is of the house of Windsor. That means that is his family line, his dynasty. And God is saying to David, I am going to build you a family line, a dynasty, there in verses 12 and 13. But I want you to grasp this this morning. I want you to know this about God. God is the one who always takes the initiative. He is always the giver. He always makes the first move. He is always the first to act. And we always respond to him. We receive from him. We are always only ever the beneficiaries of him. And that's very important for us to understand. And it was very important for David to understand as well. Because there have been many, many kings in the past who have built magnificent structures, homes, temples, buildings for their gods. And they have done that. Why? so that those gods that they worship would give them victory, so that those gods would be on their side, so that those gods would give them success in battle and would strengthen their rule. But the God of the Bible is not like any other God. 
He does, you can't do anything to get him onto your side. You can't build a wonderful house and think then that he is going to be for you. You can't bribe this God of the Bible. You can't use him. You can't put him into your debt because the God of the Bible always takes the initiative. He always makes the first move. He is always the first to act. No, David, you will not build a house for me. You will not build a place so that you can win my favour. I have already made you king. I have already defeated all of your enemies and I will establish your rule and your reign forever. Before you build me a house, I am already building you a house. I start, you respond. I give, you get. I bless, you receive. And this is so important for us to grasp this morning. If you understand this, it's a simple truth, but if you understand it, if you take it into your heart, it will transform your life. It will change you. It will make you a person of wonder and joy and peace and confidence. And this truth will equip you for a lifetime of ministry and service. I'm not joking about that. You see, many people think that the God of the Bible is the exact opposite of how he is portrayed here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Many people think that everything begins with them. That if I do something, then God responds to me. If I go and help an old lady across the road, or if I go to church, or if I get baptized, or if I read my Bible, or put money in the offering, then God will see that, and God will respond to what I have done, and God will bless me. That is not how the God of the Bible operates. He says, in fact, come to me, with nothing. Come to me with empty hands. Don't come to me with your good deeds. Don't come to me with your moral acts. But come to me with nothing and I will bless you. Isn't that incredible? And this is, this is radical. This sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. All religions in the world say, do something and then the God, the deity or whatever it is will respond to you by blessing you or if you haven't done enough, by punishing you. If you take Hinduism for example, do your religious duty, be devoted and the gods will bless you. Or take Islam, do the will of Allah, obey his commands, follow his teachings, and then you'll be rewarded with paradise. 
every other religion says, do, do, do. And if you do good enough, then the God, the deity, will respond with blessing. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of this world, the God who is worthy to be known and praised by people of every nation and tongue, says, I am a God of grace. You don't do anything for me. You don't build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. I take the initiative. I take the first step. I make the first move. And we can only ever respond to him. Now, you might be thinking there this morning, well, Malcolm, you've chosen a very obscure part of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7, who reads that to prove this point that God is a God of grace? Well, let me just tell you, if you're thinking that, that that is not true. That characteristic of God, that God is a God of grace, is portrayed on every page of the Bible. You could go right back to the beginning of the first chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where we read about this God creating the heavens and the earth. And it says something wonderful there, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it says there was evening and then there was morning the first day. And if you think about it, you think, well, why does it say there was evening and then there was morning the first day? Because we don't think like that. We think there's morning and then there's evening. That was the first day. And it's because of the fact that God wants us to know God's day begins before our day. It's a reminder that when you get up in the morning, God has already been working. You enter into his work that he has already started. He is the God who gives you life and breath and health and strength every single day. We only respond to what he has first given to us. And then if you carry on it through the book of Genesis and you get to Genesis 11 and you read there about the men wanting to make their name great. They wanted to make their name great and so they built this big tower and God comes down to look at it and God scatters those people. They wanted to make their name great and so they did something. But look at the next chapter, Genesis chapter seven, uh, 12. And what do we read? God goes to find a man called Abram. This man lives in a place called Ur. And he's not looking for God. In fact, he is an idolater. He worships false God. And God comes to him and he says, I am going to make your name great. And I am going to bless you and I am going to make you a blessing to the ends of this world. See, he wasn't doing anything. The others there were trying to make their name great. He wasn't even looking for God and God comes to him and says, I will make your name great. Or you go to the book of Exodus. And this is an interesting one, isn't it? Where God brings Israel, his people, to Mount Sinai and he gives them his law. And many people look at that and you say, well, there you are. God says, obey my law and then I will bless you. And I'm saying, no, you've jumped into the story in the middle. Do you know what happened before that? 
God's people were slaves in Egypt. And God, what did he do? He came down. He sent to them Moses. He rescued them. He redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery. Brought them away from death. He did all of that and then blessed them by giving his law. My friends, what I'm saying to you, we always receive first from the God of the Bible. And that order is so important. God is the one who acts first. And if you're a Christian this morning, you you know that. You know that to be true already in your life. Because that's what he's done for you. Before you were born, before you were even knitted together in your mother's womb, God knew you. And God loved you from eternity past. And while you were shaking your fist at him and saying, I I don't want anything to do with you, God, God was pursuing you. And there was this time when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And you couldn't do anything. I mean, even if there was some magic potion that you could reach out and take and drink and that would save you, you wouldn't even have been able to do that because you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God came to you and he sent his Holy Spirit and he made you alive and he gave you faith and he gave you repentance and he adopted you as his child and he's taking you home. God always takes the initiative. He always makes the first move. We simply respond to what he has already done. It all begins with him. And let me tell you, friends, if you switch the order, if you make it about you first and then God responding to you, you're into the darkness of religion and there's no joy and there's no peace and there's no hope there. But God here, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, promises to build a house for David. And that house, that that family line, that dynasty, is a kingdom that will never end. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says that even death will not bring to an end what God has promised. And then look at verses 14 and 15. It says, not even sin will stop God from fulfilling his promises to David. God is building on the promises that he first made to Abraham, that he will bless the world through this descendant of David. And it's not long after Christmas, so you know the Christmas story. You know Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem to to register there. Why? And the answer is because they were of the house and the line of David. They were in that family line. And yes, the baby that was born there in the major is that promised king that God had given to David. That promised king, Jesus Christ, this one who will overcome sin and death 
by his own death on the cross and who would rise to life on the third day. Every religion says, do, and then God will bless you. But Christianity says, no, God has already blessed us by sending his own son in our place who lived this perfect life that none of us here has lived and who died the death that we all deserve. And so the question is this morning, how are you going to respond to him? He's acted in time, in space, in history. But how are you going to respond to him? Are you going to respond to the giving of his own son? Are you willing to accept him? Are you willing to receive him? Because he will accept you. And he will receive all who come to him. All who turn from their doing and simply rest in what Christ has done. He will receive. All those who repent, who change their thinking about who God is and about this world and who trust in Jesus Christ. He will accept you. And that, my friends, is grace. And that is amazing grace. Well, let me say three things, because if you've got those pink uh, notice sheets, you see that's my first point, and you're getting worried now because you see three more points. I'm going to be very quick now to finish. When you know God's grace, it's going to change you, and it leads, firstly there, I put there, it's going to humble you. Look at verse 18. David goes in and he says before the Lord, Who am I? Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? David is humbled. He is amazed at God's grace to him. He is full of gratitude. God has been so good to him. And if you're a Christian, if you know Christ, if you've received him, that's true of you, isn't it? Amazing grace to me. I don't deserve it. Why, God, have you shown grace to me? I haven't done anything to deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. And I don't want any of you to lose that amazement, that wonder at what God has done for you. Don't take it for granted. Because as soon as you start to do that, as soon as you start to think, uh, well, actually, I deserve it because I've been, a, I've, I've been a good servant in the church and I've done this and I've done that and I've done the other. You know, I've almost earned God's grace. As soon as you start to think like that, you're thinking like the older brother in, in that wonderful story that Jesus told in Luke 15. And he, he says to his father, he says, When his father says, come to the party, he says, all these years, I have been, and the word there he uses is the word slaving. All these years, I have been slaving for you, and you never gave me even a goat so I could have a party with my friends. You see, he's angry. He feels hard done by. There's no joy in his life. And that's what happens when we lose the amazement and wonder of God's grace to us. We become like that older brother. We start to get angry. Why God? Why have you like, after all I've done for you? 
And the truth is, even in that parable, the father goes to that son and he says to him, all I have is yours. I've already given it to you. You just can't see it. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been blessed with every, every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything. Everything you need is in Him. And you didn't deserve it, and you're not worthy of it, but we humbly receive it. And we rejoice. We're always only the beneficiaries from God. It humbles us, this grace. And secondly, though, it gives us confidence. Verse 19 is a very difficult verse to understand. And if you read the commentators, they have all kinds of ideas about this verse. I think what it's saying is that God is promising to do something new and deal with his people through this Davidic king. If the king obeys, the people will be blessed. If the king disobeys, the people will be cursed. That's what I think it's saying, and we can talk about that another time. But that is good news for us if we're Christians this morning. Because what that is saying is that God treats us on the basis of the obedience of our King, King Jesus. And that's wonderful news. Just imagine if God treated you on the basis of your own obedience or your disobedience. It would be constantly changing. You would have good days when you feel God's smile upon you and then bad days when you feel that God is against you. Days when you didn't read your Bible. Days when you gave into temptation. But what God is saying here is that it is not on the basis of what you have done or not done, but it is on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the most important thing. He is 33 years of perfect obedience when he never said anything wrong, thought anything wrong or did anything wrong. That is counted as yours. And so on those bad days, what do you do? You go back to God and you repent of your sin and you look away from yourself and you look upwards to Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God on high and his perfect righteousness and you claim that as your own. He is now our confidence. He is our righteousness. He is our saviour. We rest in him, not in what we have done or not done. So this grace gives us this confidence. It humbles us. It gives us confidence. And then one last thing, um, verses 25 and 26, David is uh, sitting there praying to God and then he gets up. He says, God, do as you've promised. Now, we might think, well, this is wonderful, isn't it? God's grace, God doing all of this, and we can just sit there and watch it all. And we should sit there and watch it all. 
But there's also a time when we have to get up and we have to do. This grace motivates us. And even David, who got up from praying to God, he didn't go and build the temple for God, but he did get things ready for the for Solomon, his son, to do that. So I'm not saying to you this morning that we don't do anything for God. If you're hearing that, you're not hearing me right. I'm saying it's the order that is really important. You can't do anything for God until you know what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so some of you here this morning have got to do nothing but sit and stop and be silent and rest in what God has done for you. You need to know that. You need to know that. And I say to you, don't do anything until you can grasp the delight and be amazed by all that God has done for you. But if you are rejoicing in what God has done for you and in this glorious God of grace, then it's time now to give yourself to God in grateful thanks. Because out of the overflow of God's grace, I'm asking you to show grace to others to proclaim his grace to others and to live graciously amongst others as well. Amongst the nations, amongst the communities, amongst your work colleagues, amongst your friends, wherever God has placed you. We don't build a house for God. He is already building his house, his church. We get involved in that in what God is doing. And those who have known his undeserved, amazing grace can't help but give themselves back to this one who first gave himself for them. So my friends, I'm saying to you, sit and be amazed and then humbly and confidently get up and do what he has given you to do for his glory and no other. Let's close with verse 22. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Let's pray together.